good morning. Everyone, look to your neighbor and tell them, God is good. Tell them, Jesus loves you. And tell them to smile. <laughs> good morning, everyone. It's a quiet morning, so I'm just going to get everybody to shake up and shake loose a little bit. I'm teaching in Galatians this morning, which is such a privilege, because one is I do love to teach the Word, and I love Galatians. I love Galatians. But Galatians um, is a tough book. It's a very difficult book to teach. I know theologians that have spent a lifetime studying and learning Galatians, and they still, there's so much to understand about it. So it's a little intimidating. I don't think we're going to do much than, more than scratch the surface on Galatians. And probably in 10 years, I'll have different revelation. Hopefully it'll be this plus adding on, building on to what I have this morning for us. So I'm going to teach you in Galatians 2, uh, starting in verse 11. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone and you want to find that and follow along, I'll also have the verses up on the slides to follow along this morning. Galatians brings so much liberty. It brings so much liberty. When we begin to understand the implications of Jesus' death on the cross, just that what was won for us, how we actually truly can live guilt-free. Do you believe that we can live guilt-free? That that's what the death of Jesus on the cross paid for? Not like we have to feel a little bit bad. You know, we've sinned and we need to feel bad a little bit. Maybe we need to live in a little bit of guilt but actually we can live guilt-free because of Jesus. And the truth that I'm sharing this morning, it, it might sound like heresy to some people, but it's the truth, and it's the truth of the word. We can live guilt-free because of the cross, and we have freedom also from sin. We also have freedom from sin. We've been delivered from the dominion of darkness, and we can be free to live godly lives. It's not as a burden or something that we have to do, but because we've been freed We've been freed from the bondage of sin. We may not feel like it, but we are free from the bondage of sin. It no longer has a power over us anymore. So we give in to our flesh. We don't have to. We can actually say no because the Holy Spirit inside of us. Galatians 1, 3, and 4 says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, as Hugh preached last week, we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, meaning we aren't bound by sin anymore. We don't have to sin. We have choice. We've been rescued, and we can live godly lives. I grew up in somewhat of a legalistic church background, like pretty much everybody I think I know in some way has grown up in a church where at times there was a focus on the outward conformity and a lot of doing and do's and don'ts instead of the heart and relationship with Jesus being the main thing. A church that was, um, you know, you, you went out of duty sometimes, oftentimes. It was a have to go. You beat yourself up when you make mistakes. You have to beat yourself up a little bit about your mistakes, right? You feel like you're never good enough. Maybe some of us still live like that a little bit, but that's not God's intention for us. And I want to preach that with conviction this morning. You feel like you're not good enough. You wonder if God is pleased with me. You have to wonder, is he happy with me? Or is he angry with me? When the Bible says God is not angry with us ever again. God is not angry with us. That's amazing truth because of Jesus. Some of us need to hear that today. God's not angry 
with you. He's not angry with you. I need to hear that at times. So don't be angry with yourself or with others. That's what happens when we feel God is angry with us. We end up being hard on ourselves, right? And then we end up being hard on other people when we're hard on ourselves. So know today that God's not angry with us, ever. He loves us. So picking up in verse 11, you guys good, you with me? Picking up verse 11, we read that the apostle Peter, who's also Cephas, or they call him Cephas, he came to Antioch where Paul was ministering with Barnabas. And he came and joined them to minister there. You might remember that Peter is the disciple that Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. That's Peter. He was one of the disciples, and he's considered the leader of the first church ever. But Paul came to Antioch, I mean Peter, sorry, Peter came to Antioch, and it's here where Paul had to confront him because he wasn't living out the gospel that he preached. So let's read verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And the Gentiles were anyone who wasn't Jewish. Anyone who wasn't Jewish. And Jewish people up until Jesus came and died on the cross, they had to live by a very strict Mosaic law, right? You guys probably know this. All kinds of laws. All kinds of laws about everything, like what you can eat, what you can't eat, how to rest, when you can work, when you can rest, circumcision, the Sabbath day. In fact, there are 2,000 verses in the Old Testament for the Mosaic Law, and it can sum up in 613 commands that they had to live by. So it was tedious. There was a lot of rules and a lot of laws that Jewish people had to live by before Jesus came. But then Jesus came and died on the cross and they no longer needed to keep the Mosaic laws and follow rules in order to be holy or acceptable to God because Jesus fulfilled the law. And now instead of being saved by, Philip, um, by following the Mosaic law, we're all saved through faith in Jesus. And you guys know this. And salvation was made available to everyone, everyone who believed. So back to the story, it appears that Peter came from Antioch and he started relaxing a little bit about Jewish customs and the Mosaic Law. He started hanging out with the Gentiles. Maybe he started eating a little meat. Maybe he, you know, worked a little bit on the Sabbath. He started relaxing with the Gentiles. He wasn't following all the customs. Until these intimidating Jewish brothers came, and probably religious people, they obviously were Jewish, and they came, and he was intimidated by them, and he decided, I'm going to pull back. I'm worried what they think. I'm hanging out with the uncircumcised group. Seems so silly to us, right? Circumcision, uncircumcision. But for them, it was, it was a big deal. Peter wasn't embracing false teaching. He wasn't all of a sudden thinking that he's not saved by grace or saved by Jesus. He's not embracing false teaching. He was just giving in to fear of man. He was just giving in to fear of man. All of a sudden, he cared what this elite group of people thought. And so he pulled back and he wasn't living out the gospel. Legalistic people can be intimidating, right? They are intimidating. People who feel better about themselves based on what they do, their status, maybe their money, 
or what good people they are, or how much they serve, how much they give, their ability to maintain a certain image, they can be intimidating. Legalistic people often take the truth and they weave it in and they twist it just a little bit. And so we end up believing. And just like Peter started to feel a little superior to the Gentiles, we also can fall into that in the church. Some examples of legalism that I can think of that creep into the church, because there's still legalism in the church, right? We're not above being legalistic. If Peter could fall into it, then we surely could as well. So I was thinking of examples, modern-day examples of legalism in the church, and one of them is I thought how strict people's diets can be nowadays. You know, there's like all these... Um, really rigid diets, like you've got to be vegan or you've got to be vegetarian. And it almost like becomes a religion to some people and they feel like everybody should be doing it, right? And that may not be in the church, but that's something in the world where all of a sudden it becomes like, this is how it has to be, right? I don't know if you've ever been judged by anyone about the eating, but it can happen. It's happened to me. Parents know the judgment of legalistic people more than anybody. It's like as soon as you have a baby, you're saying to the whole world, I care what you think about my parenting. Come and tell me what you think about how I should raise my child, right? Those of you who have kids, it's like you're just opening yourself up for that. You're only a good parent if your baby eats organic or if you, you know, mash up their food, if they wear organic clothes. There's all these things. <laughs> As a parent, all these rules you need to follow to be perfect and, you know, or you're subjected to people's judgment. There's also adoption. Adoption's a really good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But I've been in church cultures where there were people in the church that thought everybody had to adopt if you were a follower of Jesus because it's such a good thing. They made it a rule. So we can become legalistic about things in the church. Not in our church. I mean, all these other churches, right? <laughs> Some Christians feel like every believer needs to take an active role in politics and then you have to be in a certain party or you're not saved. I know Christians who think people aren't saved if they're not part of a certain party. That's legalism. I mean, where is that in the Bible? Some believers feel superior because they speak in tongues, so then they feel better. Again, that's a superior attitude. It's legalism. And in all of it is good things, right? But you end up putting it on people like they need to do it. So it's, it's in the church, it's in us as human beings. We can so easily begin to feel superior because of our background, our past, the sins we don't struggle with that somebody else struggles with. Legalistic people take everything and want to make it a rule. They love rules. They love programs. They love principles. They love hierarchy. They love it. And it creeps into the church. When Jesus paid our freedom, he paid for it on the cross with his very life to set us free. But Paul wouldn't compromise the gospel even for his friendship with Peter. He confronted Peter about his inconsistencies in verse 14, in public actually. Let's read verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Peter wasn't following the Jewish customs, right? So he was a Jew, but he was living like a Gentile, right? How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So you're not even following the Jewish customs, yet you want to put it on these people by not associating with them. Such a good argument, right? Such a strong argument. That's what legalism is, though. It's Peter had it in a nutshell. It's hypocrisy, because no one can keep the law 
No one can be perfect. No one can be good enough. I know you guys know this, but this is the text I'm preaching on, so I'm preaching it. <laughs> and no one can be good enough. No one can by, by following customs or following rules. Again, in Galatians, it was a circumcision and following Jewish customs. But the same thing can happen in the church today. So Paul goes on to revisit the basics of the gospel. In verses 15 and 16, he's stating that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone. And grace is the unearned, I think I have the definition up there, grace is the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Just the favor of God lavished on us for no reason except for he's good. That's the only reason. And we're saved by grace alone. Just the favor of God on people for no reason. Not for having done anything in ourselves, just because of Jesus. That's amazing. I love grace. It's amazing. Grace is so amazing. <laughs> Sorry. Let's read verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Why does Paul say, sorry, I'm emotional. This, I was emotional all week preparing this because I was such amazing truth. Why was Paul saying sinful Gentiles? Surely he knew everyone's sinful, right? Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. He knows. But it's a different kind of sin. The Gentiles were considered sinful in a different way. Their sin was so open. They, were, um, they didn't have any moral code or standards. It's like they had no law. Anything went. Murder, idolatry, immorality, theft. It didn't matter. It all went. So they were considered pretty sinful, openly sinful. Um, and that's why he says that. And that's why the Jewish people had such a hard time accepting the Gentiles and accepting that they were worthy of the same salvation, of the same grace, because they were so proud of their culture and felt superior. But their sin was just different. Their sin was just different. It was things like racism. It was pride, being judgmental of other people, being hard and callous in your heart instead of having the compassion of Jesus. Their sin was just different. And that's why Paul is stating here in verse 16, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, even we, in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. It's so profound. It shook their culture to the core. Paul is stating they're all equal. Everyone's equal. Everyone needs the same thing. Whether you look cleaned up on the outside or you don't look cleaned up on the outside. You embrace all kinds of sin or had all kinds of sin in your background. Paul is saying we're all equal. Everyone needs the same grace. And everyone is only justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Maybe we find it easier to accept people who look cleaned up on the outside. People who have been in the church their whole lives. I know sometimes that can happen. Than someone who grew up on the streets or someone with a rough life and had more open immorality. My grandfather always, I love my grandfather. He's a, he was a drummer, 
And he was a dreamer. He loved movies. He loved all kinds of things. He loved life. Um, he was an artist, personality. But he would always say to me growing up, I'm a good person. I went to church. I never cheated on my wife. I never drank. I never smoked. I never stole anything. I'm a good person. And I think I, it always stuck with me because he clearly felt that made him okay in God's eyes, okay in his own eyes. He was relying on that a bit. And the church is doing something wrong if we produce followers of Jesus who feel they're better because they live a clean life. The church is doing something wrong then. Godly living is important. If we go further in Galatians, we learn that Paul very much emphasized godly living. He wasn't at all writing that off. But we're justified by faith in Jesus alone. What does it mean to be justified? You guys know justification, that big word, justification? It speaks about Marinos. <laughs> it speaks about our righteousness. It speaks about our right standing before God. And once we're saved, we're given the status of righteous. We're given it. It's imputed to us. The righteousness of Jesus is given to us once we're saved. It means that in the eyes of God, we're seen as righteous. It means when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous. Do you believe that? He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our weakness. He doesn't see our faults. He sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at us. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Justification is a legal term. So if anyone ever tells you you have to do anything else to be righteous, we're righteous by the blood of Jesus only. That's it. God sees the blood of Jesus when he sees us, and he's given us his righteousness. And the word justification, it's a, it's a legal term. In a, in a court of law, if we were made to stand trial for all of our sins, all of our mistakes, and the devil is standing there, and he's the accuser. He's the one that accuses. He stands there and says, they, they did this, they did that, they thought this, they, they made this mistake. And then Jesus comes in, and he shows his nail-scarred hands, and he shows his nail-scarred feet, and he says, not guilty. Not guilty. Because of Jesus, we're not guilty. And I'll cry every day about that because that's something worth crying about. That's a beautiful thing. When God looks at us, we've been declared not guilty once and for all. Free to go. Sorry. Free to go. We don't need to live in condemnation over our mistakes anymore. We don't even need to beat ourselves up a little bit about our mistakes. Do you believe that? I didn't always believe that, but I'm realizing that that's true. We don't need to live in condemnation. Sometimes we want to wallow in it a little bit or punish ourselves a little bit, right? I've got to punish myself for that mistake. Or maybe God's punishing me for those things I did in the past. How many have ever thought that? Maybe I deserve this. Maybe this is my lot. I've thought that. We tell ourselves that we need to feel bad a little bit longer. But that's living in condemnation. That's not living in the freedom we have in Jesus. Jesus took our place. He took our punishment that we deserved. Isaiah 53.5 
but he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isn't that good news? Again, it doesn't mean we're now holy. It doesn't mean we've arrived. It doesn't mean we don't have weaknesses. We still have sins we're going to have to find out about and things in our lives we'll have to repent about as we go and walk the journey with the Lord. Those things, are, we're not perfect. But the blood of Jesus covers us. Are you guys okay? Can I keep going? I'm, oh yeah, I have a long time. I can keep going. So I want to take us then. I was reminded of the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Um, and when the Egyptians were slaves, or not, sorry, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and Moses went to tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. And he didn't, he wouldn't. And then God began bringing on the plagues on the Egyptians, right? And one of them was to kill all the firstborn sons. And what did God instruct the Israelites to do? He instructed them to paint the blood of the lamb on the door frame so that when the angel of death came and was coming to take the firstborn sons, when it came by your house, it would see the blood on your door frame and would pass by. It would pass by. And that's a picture of what Jesus' blood is for us. That's a picture of what Jesus' blood is for us. We have the blood of Jesus covering us. The only reason we can come before God is because of Jesus. You and I, once we believe in Jesus, that his death on the cross bought our salvation, we're justified by our faith in Jesus alone. And by the, another translation says, by the faithfulness of Jesus. So either way you want to look at it, it's the faithfulness of Jesus, that he is faithful. He will do what he said. His, his, price on the, his uh, death on the cross was enough. But it was not a small price. What's free for us was not free for Jesus, right? It came at a high price to Jesus. So we can never cheapen grace. We can never cheapen grace. You know what I mean by that? There was a the whole grace movement for a while where it was like anything goes. Can, we're righteous now. You can do anything. Pretty much you can get away with anything. You never have to repent ever again. You never have to even say you're sorry. Well, I don't know about that. I don't think so. <laughs> I think uh, you can't cheapen grace because the more you understand what Jesus has done for us, the more you want to give your whole life to him. And the only response can be to fall on our knees in worship. That's the only response, is surrender. The more we have revelation. Which brings me to the issue of sin and godly living. Because what about sin? And Paul deals with that in this chapter. Does the gospel and being justified and declared not guilty mean we can sin all we want? Does it lead to a licentious lifestyle? And the answer, of course, is no. Once we're saved, there's an exchange that happens. It's a supernatural exchange. And the Bible says it's as if we died with Christ and we're brought back to life and that Christ himself is our very life. It's hard to understand, right? But the Bible teaches we've died with Christ and we came back to a full new life, alive in Christ now. Jesus himself is our life. And the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and we're made alive. We have a new life. We have new life. It's not, um, 
I've got to say it correctly. It's not like a cleaned up version of ourselves once we're saved. Tyron puts it that way. And Tyron is such an encouragement to us. He's such an encouragement in general to the body. And um, so I'm giving a plug for him for that weekend when he's here. You don't want to miss because he's, he's got such a revelation of Jesus that you can't be around it and not leave completely different, completely knowing Jesus in a, in a bigger way. But he puts it that the, um, the gospel is not bad people being made good. The gospel is dead people made alive. It is dead people made alive. It's not a cleaning up of ourselves, right? And I know Hugh preaches that all the time. Let's read verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're considered to have died with Christ. And our new life is lived by faith in Jesus. We still have the flesh, right? We still have the flesh. We still wrestle with sin. We still wrestle with temptation. But like I said earlier, we're not bound by those things anymore. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. And he reminds us who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit reminds us who Jesus is, which in turn reminds us who we are. The more we know who Jesus is, the more we know who we are. And the Holy Spirit reminds us. Sometimes we need reminding. And we need the Holy Spirit to live this new life. We need the Holy Spirit to change, to grow, to be more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is what changes us from the inside out. It's not all of our efforts and working really hard to be better. It's actually the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, that slowly works in our lives. That's why we sing that beautiful song. We didn't sing it today, but about letting God's work in your life, the Holy Spirit's work in us to bring us to completion. We allow the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We can say no. We can stop it. But we allow the Holy Spirit's work in our life because that's actually how we change and how we grow to be more like Jesus, right? Only the Holy Spirit within us can change us and transform us. So we don't need to strive to be further along than we are. We can't compare. We just surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and allow him. When there's ministry opportunities, allow, open up and let the Holy Spirit do the work that he wants to do in us. Even if it is a little uncomfortable, you know, that's how we grow. That's how God changes us. So again, Jesus' sacrifice was enough, and we live now on Jesus and who he is. He's our everything. We live on the completed work of the cross. If we trust in anything else other than Jesus, we're basically spitting in God's face. If we try to stand before God in, on any other basis than the blood of Jesus alone, it's as if Jesus didn't even need to die. It's like we're saying, no, that wasn't enough for me. I'm actually going to trust in the fact that I took communion and that I came to church 90% of the year and that I, you know, have stayed faithful to my spouse or whatever people trust in. We're denying the grace of God freely given to us. And it's as if Jesus' sacrifice was for nothing. 
So how does this revelation change how I live? How does it change how you guys live? How we all live? When we have more revelation of Jesus, we serve from a place of revelation of Jesus, not a place of duty or obligation. We serve because God has freely given and been so generous to us. We've been given so much, so we give in response. It just changes us because we do things from a different place. It's from our love for Jesus. It's from because we know his great love for us and we want to pour our lives out for him. We want to pour our lives out for him. Another way it changes us is we love others. We love other people because we're filled with the love of God. We need the love of God to love others. We need the love of God to love others. And in John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. God wants us to love one another. He wants us to love people. We need his love to do that. We need the love of God to love each other. So we're called to love each other, to work together, to cooperate, having each other's backs, thinking the best of each other, keeping hearts free from offense, and working out our differences in love. And finally, we're called to obedience. It actually, not, we, it changes us because we want to be obedient. We want to show our love to Jesus by our obedience to him. The Bible tells us that obedience is God's love language. So we don't do the things we do even because we love people. That's not even why we do the things we do. That seems like a really good reason, right? We love people, so that's why we do the things we do. But actually, it needs to be more than that. It needs to be because of our just doing what God has asked us to do. And that's what will keep us going. That's what will keep us going. So in conclusion, I want to say restoration exists, like you guys know, to bring glory to Jesus. To be a place where people can encounter the love of the Father and the acceptance of God. And sometimes we may even look around and say, I don't have anything in common with all these people. I don't know if I fit in here. But we have our love for Jesus in common. And Jesus puts people in community together that are different and that are diverse because it reflects his creativity to the world. And it reflects his magnificence and his majesty to the world to have diversity together. I love it. I think it's beautiful. And Jesus is creating a beautiful masterpiece here. And the church is Jesus' masterpiece. It's not a man's masterpiece. It's his masterpiece. He's the head. He puts people together to reflect his beauty to the world. And the world will know that we're followers of Jesus because of our love for him and our love for each other. So I just want to encourage us this morning. I think there's a lot of things, but <laughs> I think at the end I just felt to say, just allow God's love to come. Allow ourselves to be loved by God so that we can love other people, so that we can love one another and truly reflect who Jesus is to the world out there, the world who needs 